Hi, ABC Online. My name is Tiffany. Thanks for tuning in today. There's a few things coming up that I wanted to tell you about. First off, we have our Connections class starting again. Uh, if you're new to ABC or if you've been here for a while and not quite sure what all we do, this is a great opportunity for you. This class is starting on Sunday, May 21st. It runs for five weeks during our 9 a.m. service. It's a great way you can get uh, you can meet the pastors, meet some of our staff, find out what we do here at ABC, what we believe, and how you can get involved. For more information, details, or if you're interested, interested in signing up, you can email gerald at abcchurch.org. And next up, summer is just right around the corner. And with summer, that means our ABC Kids team is gearing up for VBS. VBS, or Vacation Bible School, is a week-long, high-energy, gospel-centric day camp for our elementary kids. And this is an amazing ministry and a great way to minister not only to the kids who attend on a Sunday at ABC, but to their families and to their friends and their families in our community. We usually have between three to 400 kids on our campus for this event every year. And with that, in order to pull this off, we need volunteers. And I mean lots and lots and lots of volunteers. If you have any availability June 12th through the 16th, please consider coming out and helping in any way possible. You can go to our website, abcchurch.org kids uh, to see how you can both register your kids, volunteer, or uh, if you want to donate any supplies for VBS, you can do that there. Also, if you have any other questions or concerns, you can always email sandy at abcchurch.org. Thanks for joining us today, and now here's Jeff. Good morning. Welcome to ABC. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Um, as always, we're so glad you can tune in and keep up with our series through Matthew. Um, if you're traveling, maybe you're homesick, um, but we would always love to see you on campus. And so just a reminder that we have services at eight o'clock, nine o'clock and 1045 on campus. Um, we'd love to have you back. In fact, uh, next Sunday is Mother's Day. So maybe bring your mom to church. That'll be a good way to kick off the day. <laughs> anyway, we're going to be in our series um, in Matthew. And this morning, there's a scene that if they were to make a movie about it, um, you probably wouldn't go see it. And you definitely wouldn't take your kids because there's so much immorality in this scene. In fact, even leading up to this scene, um, that it, it wouldn't be a movie that we would enjoy watching. But the story really starts with Herod the Great. If we were to back up for a minute, Herod the Great was this dictator, this ruler who had been appointed by the emperor Caesar himself to rule over the region where Israel primarily lived down in that um, kind of southern eastern part of the, the Roman Empire. Um, Herod the Great had 10 wives and at least 10 sons. Um, he was so wicked that he had his favorite wife, Miriam, and her son and her mother all killed um, for rumor of infidelity, had three of his sons also murdered um, because there was uh, some kind of treason plot brewing, um, and earned himself this satirical title from uh, the present day historians or the current day historians back then, they called him the family man, Herod the Great, the family man. In fact, Augustus himself said, I would rather be one of Herod's pigs than his sons. He was inciting the Jewish custom that you didn't eat pork. And so he thought, at least if I was one of Herod's pigs, I had a better chance of not being slaughtered. The paranoia of Herod really created this 
power and fear dynamic in this family where it was every man for himself. And there were stories of poisoning plots among the brothers and stealing and backstabbing and power grabbing, political posturing. Herod the Great lived with such fear and greed that when he heard word of the king of the Jews being born in Bethlehem, he had every two-year-old boy slaughtered in that region. You remember that story. Dare I say that the hill in Washington, D.C. in 2023 looks like a children's bedtime story as compared to the royal Herodian family and the wickedness that existed in that family. But he eventually died and he left the kingdom to be battled out by his three sons. To give you a little bit of history and a clear picture of the geography of the area, take a look at this video. Because all of Judea was under Roman rule, Herod's succession plans were required to be approved by Caesar Augustus, which Herod had failed to do before his death. So Archelaus and Antipas traveled to Rome to each plead their case. Most in the Senate supported Antipas. Archelaus had recently shown himself to be an intemperate, harsh, and cruel leader due to how he had handled a recent Passover uprising. He had left Judea with blood running in the streets. Now this uprising began because Herod the Great had ordered that the golden Roman eagle be installed on the gate of the Jewish temple, which was a huge offense to the Jews. So after the death of Herod the Great, two popular teachers incited their students to remove the golden eagle from the gate of the Jewish temple. For this crime, Archelaus ordered that they all be burned to death. That event sparked the Passover uprising, which resulted in the death of some 3,000 Jews. But despite the violent tendencies of Herod's son, Caesar Augustus had ultimately decided to honor Herod's will in dividing up his kingdom. Archelaus, who was given the title ethnarch or ruler of the people, would be in charge of Judea. His brother Antipas, who was called a tetrarch or ruler over a fourth, would be put in charge of Galilee and Perea. The half-brother Philip, also a tetrarch, ruled several smaller regions in the northeast. And finally, a fourth smaller section was given to Salome, Herod the Great's sister. Thus was the continuation of the dynasty of King Herod the Great into the gospel era. So in today's um, view of the passage, we're looking at the Herod that's right there in the middle of the map, the one who's sitting on his throne. This is Herod Antipas, the tetrarch. He's the man in the center of the screen. To the east, you have Philip, who is also a tetrarch, um, who was given a quarter of the, the um, kingdom. And then down below, you have Archelaus, who was really the ruler. They call him the ruler of the people because he was over the primary population of Israel down in the kind of area of Jerusalem. Today, we're talking about Herod Antipas. That's the Herod that Matthew's referring to. That's the Herod that when the New Testament gospels use just the word Herod, they're referring specifically to Herod Antipas. He was one of the three brothers. And that brings us up to the passage where we find the story of this Herod who was insecure at odds with his brother Archelaus, uh, jealous of his other brother, paranoid of being overthrown as a leader. And so it gives us a clear on-ramp to read this passage in Matthew chapter 14 and understand what's happening in the moment. Let me pray as we read God's word together. Father, we ask that you would speak to us through your word. This story of Herod and his family is included in the gospel to bring light and clarity 
to our own worldview, our context, to the evil that exists in the world, to our response to evil, um, what what fear um, ultimately does in our world. And we ask that you would make it very clear what you're trying to do um, in our world, Lord, as it relates to this passage here. So make it clear as we read. Father, we ask that um, your Holy Spirit would direct us as we walk through this passage together this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. Let me read chapter 14, verse 1 through 12. At the time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Let me pause real quick for a second. So verse 1 and 2, right here at the beginning of the chapter, Herod has heard of the fame of Jesus, and he's attributing that to the dead John the Baptist. And then in verse three, what Matthew does is he flashes back. So this is now a rewind. So Herod hears of Jesus. He says, hey, that must be John the Baptist, the guy I killed. And then Matthew goes, let me rewind real quick and take you back to the moment when Herod had John the Baptist killed. So we pick it up in verse three. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oath and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came, took the body, and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. So for whatever reason, as we enter this story, whether it be for political gain or whether it was just pure lust, this Herod, Antipas, takes his brother, Philip's wife. There was apparently an affair. Um, They had been in a relationship, and he decides he wants this woman to be his wife. So he brings Herodias, the wife of Philip, over to be his wife. And at some point, John the Baptist gets an audience with Herod. We don't know the specifics of that, We don't know what opportunity he would have had to speak to Herod, but it's likely a result of the signs and wonders John could have been doing at the time and the teaching that Herod was intrigued by John. In fact, the Gospel of Mark says he was very enamored. He's very uh, curious about John the Baptist and Jesus. And so he likely summoned John the Baptist to his palace. And when he got there, he spoke the way he always spoke in every context, and he was quick to preach against sin. He saw this affair as an immoral abomination before God, so he preached what he always preached, repent. He said, this is not a lawful marriage. You can't take your half-brother's wife as your own. This is an adulterous relationship, and it ticked Herod off, but more importantly, it ticked off Herodias, his new wife. In fact, Mark says that she held a grudge against him. They were both mad. And so Herod throws him in a dungeon. There's been a modern day excavation of Herod's temple. 
and they've actually discovered the basement of this temple, the dungeon, this stone area that was excavated so that Herod could have his very own prison, a private prison in his house. Now Herod throws a birthday party and Herod's new wife, Herodias, has a daughter, which would then be, reminder, his half-niece. So his daughter is called in at Herod's birthday. Now this isn't a birthday party like you and I typically throw. It was custom for a Greek noble party to be like a rager. Tons of alcohol and immorality and sensuality, just an awful, awful place to exist. In fact, sometimes they went on for days. But this woman, Herodias, his wife's daughter, was invited in to dance for the party. So Herod being pleased by his stepdaughter's dance, and you can imagine what that word pleased means. It was likely a very lewd dance, offers her anything she wants, up to half the kingdom. You can have anything you want. And because her mother, Herod's wife, held a grudge against John the Baptist, she said, I want his head. Tell Herod you want the head of John the Baptist, which leads us to this event where the Jewish hero, a friend and cousin of Jesus himself, the promised and long-awaited son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, in the dark, humid stone basement fastened by masons and mortar chained in steel shackles that had been forged for common thieves and criminals. John, the one who baptized God himself, was horrifically slaughtered with a blade like an innocent lamb in preparation for a feast. Word spreads quickly with friends and family, John is dead. Herod had killed him. John, the voice crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. The one who paved the way for Jesus in his ministry is gone. And a wave of grief is sent across this community, making its way to Jesus himself. And this becomes a critical moment in the gospel story. Pay attention. There's fear that leads to this moment of trauma. Let's look at those two concepts together, fear and trauma. This passage is riddled with fear, particularly Herod's fear. There are several key places that I see Herod's fear creeping up and ultimately driving this irrational thought process and decision-making. Let's go back and look at verse four briefly. It says, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. So Herod did not like what John had to say. He did not like people speaking against his morality. Now, whether that was fear of immorality, fear of the consequence of immorality, I don't know, but there was fear that started creeping into John. There was something that got under his skin when John preached against his immoral decisions. And then we go on in verse five and it says, and though he wanted to put him to death, John made him so upset he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because he held, they held him to be a prophet. So not only does Herod have fear of the consequence of immorality, but he has fear of man and public opinion. He fears what the masses will think if he takes action. And then finally in verse 9, near the end of the story, and the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it be given. Ultimately, Herod lived in the fear of shame. 
He wasn't going to be made a fool at his own party. So he did the unthinkable. The very thing Herod was afraid of, trauma. Trauma of being made a fool. Trauma of the consequence of immorality. Trauma of public opinion breaking down. The very thing that Herod feared was what he got. Trauma. Last month, there were several senseless shootings in our country. Maybe you you tracked with the news. Uh, Maybe you saw some of these things unfold. But there were a number of incidents that, that really didn't need to happen. One of the most prominent being this young man by the name of Ralph Yarl, a 16-year-old boy in Kansas City, Missouri, whose mother had asked him to pick up his twin brothers at a friend's house. She sent him the address, and he misread or punched in the wrong address to go pick up his younger brothers at a friend's house, and he goes to the wrong house, and he knocks on the door, and when the man behind the door opens the door, he shoots him twice, once in the head and once in the arm. Now, now, thankfully, maybe it's God's providence, this young man, Ralph Jarl, is going to make it. If you've been tracking with the news, he's severely injured, will have a long road of recovery ahead, but it looks like he's going to survive. But if you ask some of these um, suspects in these cases, there was several that followed that. There was another incident where some teenagers just got into the wrong car by accident and they were shot. Um, two other incidents, very similar, where it was just simple, honest mistakes that were made and they end up shot. And if you interview the suspects in some of these stories, they will say, I was afraid. So I pulled the trigger. Now, I don't know for sure that this man who opened the door that day when a 16-year-old boy is standing at his door to pick up his brothers, that, that actually fear was driving him to pull the trigger. Maybe there's some substance issue. Maybe there's other things at play. I don't know. But what I do know is fear leads to irrational decisions. And those irrational decisions create trauma. Fear results in trauma. And I love, Talking about trauma for a minute, I, I want to make sure we're on the same page in defining this, that you understand what trauma is. And, and then we can ask, is it actually in this passage? Do we actually see trauma here? Based on our definition, the Biblical Counseling Coalition defines trauma as emotional distress caused by the recurrent, tormenting memory of a horrific event. Similarly, yet a little less descript, the American Psychology Association, the APA, the secular organization, defines trauma as an emotional response to a terrible event. Same kind of definition. And so I ask, as we look at this passage, is there trauma here? And I consider this young woman who's been asked to come in and dance for a party. And then she's now been asked to carry the head of a man whom only moments before had been killed to a party where her perverted stepdad and indignant mother await. This girl has been traumatized. There will be a repetitious memory of that moment for her where she'll have to relive carrying the head of a man on a platter. And then we look at the followers, the disciples of John. Look at verse 12. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. For for a brief moment, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of these followers of John. These hopeful disciples. My guess is this wasn't 
easy to get access to the prison. They fought to get in, likely. They had to fight to get John out. And when they finally succeeded and exited those palace gates with their fearless hero's lifeless body in their hands, exhausted, panting for breath, sweaty and defeated, they likely buried him. And then they went to find his cousin Jesus to share the news. Imagine for a minute the trauma of that moment of carrying their leader and friend outside of the disgusting leadership of their country and the party that existed and created a mockery and, a, and an icon of John in that moment, carrying him out. They were traumatized. And what it does then is lead back to fear, right? Trauma leads to fear. We're afraid that that thing might happen again. We're afraid that I might have a similar experience. It's self-protection, it's defense mechanism and the cycle continues, fear leading to trauma, and then trauma creating more fear, which creates more irrational thinking, which leads to more trauma. And there's this cycle, fear, trauma, fear, trauma, fear, trauma. Science informs us that this is an automated response that forms in the brain's limbic system, which is on the border of the cortex. It's this automated, impulsive response. It's like muscle memory. When something's hot, you pull your hand back. When something hurts, you protect, you close. And so quickly as fear leads to trauma, trauma's neuro response leads back quickly to fear, to defense, to closed off, creating this fear and trauma cycle. And the only way to break the fear and the trauma response cycle is to name both of those things. To be able to say, no, that's fear speaking, that's fear driving, that's trauma. That's what happened to me was traumatic. I need to name it and identify it and then understand why there was fear driving it and why there's fear that follows. And as we name those things, we get clarity and reflection on an event and we identify the two things and we can ultimately begin a process of healing, but only when we can define them and identify them, which is what happens in grief. So we break this fear trauma cycle by taking the time to pause, reflect, consider, name, identify, and heal. Now, why would I bring all this up? I'm, I'm not a scientist, <laughs> uh, clearly, and some of you are going, yeah, we know. I'm certainly not a psychologist or a counselor, but what I know is that the same cycle of fear and trauma that we're seeing in this passage exists in our world today and likely even in your family or your personal experience. And, and what I believe we're called to do as a church is come to scripture every week, every day, and look at the truth of God's word and ask, how can I inform the way that I live and interpret the world from this truth? How can I look at the life of Jesus? How can I look at the way of Jesus and change the way that I live or see the world in order that I could become more like him. That's what we're called to do. And that's exactly what I'm going to do with you this morning. To break the fear trauma cycle, I would invite you to look to the way of Jesus. And Jesus has a way in this passage of grieving. So we see grief. Now let me read the first or last couple of verses of this passage. Verse 13 says, Now when Jesus heard this, this is following the news of John's death. When Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. 
But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Something's happening here in this story that's really unique and I don't want you to miss it, that Jesus is actually walking through a process of grief. And I think from looking at his process, we can learn something this morning that we see first Jesus withdrawing by himself to a desolate or quiet place. That's how Matthew describes it. Jesus withdraws to a desolate place. I'm always curious, I'm always struck by what Jesus doesn't do or doesn't say, right? I'm looking for how does he respond to these circumstances? What he doesn't do, he doesn't respond to John's disciples and say, chin up, friends, your brother John's in heaven with his maker. No, he he also didn't power through his teaching moment and just continue to lead the crowds. He didn't continue doing rhythmically what he was doing, he interrupted his rhythm. He also didn't use this as an object lesson. He didn't say, just as your mentor John has been killed, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. No, no. Jesus could have done and said all of those things. Certainly he had the capacity and the ability to keep doing ministry, to press on. He had the ability to use it as an encouraging moment for John's disciples. He had the ability to connect the dots of this metaphor and use it as an analogy for the kingdom of heaven. But no, he didn't do that. What does John say? He says, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew. Don't miss that. Don't take that lightly. There's just one word in that little passage that means so much to us when we consider what a process of grief looks like. When Jesus heard this, he withdrew. And more than likely, he shed some tears. If we learn anything about the nature of Jesus from the death of his friend Lazarus in John chapter 11, it's that he is not above grief. And he's not above tears. John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. He stopped. He wept. And then Matthew writes in verse 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. Following Jesus, Jesus' retreat, his withdrawal, he embraces others. Jesus retreated for a moment to identify the loss, to grieve the pain, and then he embraced others. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, those people weren't there for Jesus. Those people weren't there because he was grieving. They weren't there to help him in his grief. No, they weren't necessarily. Maybe some were, but he embraced them anyway. They weren't there for Jesus to be with him in his moment of pain. They were there because they heard him teach and saw his miracles. Regardless of their motive though, Jesus embraced others. He leaned into the relationships that were present among him. And I wanna encourage you for those who have grieved or who are grieving, not everyone will be there with you for the right reasons. Not everyone will have a pure motive They may not say or do the right things. Embrace them anyway. Lean into the relationship you have access to in others. On the flip side, when you see others grieving and you don't know the right thing to say or the right thing to do, show up anyway. Be there. You don't need to say anything. Sometimes presence is all that's needed. And then Jesus re-engages. And this is This is the third and important step, I think, in in a very compacted um, 
example of grief here, we just see a very quick little three-step process. He withdraws, he engages, and then he takes the next step that's in front of him. It says, following his compassion, in verse 14, he healed their sick. That was Jesus's mission. It's what he always did. It was really his job, if you want to call it that, his calling. So he withdraws, reflects, engages with others, and then he continues to do the work. He takes the step that's in front of him. Breaking the fear and trauma cycle requires doing the next right thing in front of you. Don't confuse this for ultimate healing. I think at times we, we believe that in our brokenness, in our seasons of grief, we need to be healed until we can move on, until we can take steps forward. And that's just not how life works. It's certainly not how grief works. There will probably never be a moment when you will totally stop grieving. There will never be a moment when, when the scars and scabs are totally gone. There's actually healing that comes in the process in taking some of the steps. God is not giving you grace to do step two, three, four, and five. He's only giving you grace to do step one. And step one is the step that's right in front of you. And sometimes it's a very small step. It's just being obedient. So I'm going to do the thing that's in front of me. I'm going to do the next thing. I may not be healed, but I'm healing. I may not be done, but I'm grieving. Jesus saw who was in front of him. He took a step forward and he healed them. It didn't bring total and complete healing to Jesus necessarily. No, definitely not all at once. But it provided a path for him to run on. A path for him to work through as a human who also suffered loss. Who also felt the pain of death in order for him to heal. I want to speculate for just a minute. If I were to fast forward beyond this passage and kind of borrow from next week's passage. Gerald's going to walk us through um, the next couple of scenes here. But what happens immediately after Jesus saw them, he healed their sick, then he feeds the 5,000. Spoiler alert, sorry. He's going to feed all these people that are there to see him. And then what he's going to do is send his disciples off in the boat. He's going to send them ahead. Go on ahead of me. And then he dismisses the crowd. And in verse 23, it says, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. See, Jesus is still in process here. He's still grieving the loss of his cousin John. He's still working through this. He took the steps that were in front of him. He engaged with the people that were there in front of him. But he still needs to process and pray. And I would speculate if I could just uh, infer what might be happening in this passage as we connect the two stories together, that he finally had the time to process, to pray, to cry, and to grieve. He was up all night, apparently, because what it says later on is that he visited his disciples out on the sea at the fourth watch, which was between 5 a.m. and 6 a.m. So Jesus, I think, was up all night that night, dismissed the crowds, they went home at sunset, and he stayed up, and he grieved, and he prayed, and he cried out to his father, and he said, meet me, I'm hurting. He walked through this process in reflection, knowing that each step he took in the process provided some degree of healing. Here's the encouragement I, I see, is that we don't wait to be healed to take the steps that God is putting in front of us, because with each step, we're provided with some degree of healing. 
each step gives us a path forward. I may not be healed, but I'm healing. And we begin to break this fear trauma cycle. When we identify the fear, we own the fact that there was trauma, and we take some steps forward. We retreat, reflect on that, and we, then we engage with those that are around us, and we take steps forward to begin the healing process. And we need to consider for a minute as we wrap up, who do you identify with in the story? Where do you land in this whole sequence of events here? If you were to read back through John 14, maybe, maybe you're identifying with Herod. Maybe you're going, yeah, I'm living in a cycle of fear. I'm afraid of what other people think of me. I'm afraid of shame. I'm afraid of perpetuating a trauma cycle. I'm, a, I'm afraid of the consequence of immorality. Maybe you, you would identify with John's disciples and you have literally experienced a scene like that where you'd say, I've been traumatized by carrying my friend's body out of the palace. You've had an event that you could identify and you're looking at this scene going, yeah, that's me. I'm one of John's disciples. I had to do that. And then I had to go tell Jesus. Maybe that's where you're sitting right now. You're identifying maybe for the first time the trauma that's happened in your life. Whether you're on either end of the spectrum, I want you to hear and see in the words of this text this morning that Jesus, not only has he been where you have been, he has walked through this trauma, healing, grief cycle, but he's capable in the moment to provide healing. That when you bring your fear to Jesus, when you bring your trauma to Jesus and you lay it at his feet, he's capable and able to heal. That's the message of the gospel, that we bring everything we have, all of our fear, the things that are riddling in our mind, that are continuing to immobilize us, that are keeping us from relationships, or that are keeping us from taking steps in our career, or our business, or our education, things that are freezing us, that we can't move because we've been traumatized. When we bring all those things to Jesus, he's capable, not only because he's been there, but because he created you, because he is the sustainer of all life, that when you bring those things to Jesus, he's able to touch you and to heal you. And what it requires is that you take the step that's in front of you, which for many, the first step is literally coming to Jesus. Bringing those things and saying, God, here's my fear. Here's my trauma. Here's the cycle I'm stuck in. I'm willing to take the next step, but I don't know what the step is. And so I'm just coming to you and asking, can you show me what's next? And you allow for him to inform you of what's happening. You allow him to speak life into you. You allow him to make sense of those things for you. And he can and will provide healing. I'm just so struck that in this passage, while Jesus is walking through his own grief, it says, and I don't want to miss this line. This is so powerful. At the end of verse 14, he healed their sick. See, there's kind of like this dual meaning of the story. We resonate and identify with Jesus as he's walking through grief, but then we realize that Jesus is the healer of all grief. He healed their sick. 
So my encouragement, whether you identify with Herod and you're living in a cycle of fear, or whether you identify with John's disciples and you've been traumatized, or, or maybe Jesus and you're trying to somehow figure out how to engage with others when maybe they're not there for the right reason, that you're trying to take the next steps forward, I want you to say, I can bring my fear and my trauma to Jesus and he can heal it. Let me pray. Father, I ask that as we walk through so, so many varieties of trauma, sometimes it's just a broken relationship, a, a decision that leads to failure, a, a moment where we, we make a snap decision. Sometimes it's, it's just an unpaid bill. <laughs> sometimes it's just a missed meeting. Lord, there are, there are big things like loss of friends and family members, loss of dreams that we need to grieve, and there are small things that we need to keep taking the next steps forward. And so I ask God that in all of those variety of things and for every single one of us together looking at this passage this morning, would you meet us in those moments? Meet us in the fear, trauma cycle. Help us to identify it to embrace others, and to take steps forward and ultimately pursue healing. We know you can bring perfect healing. So we bring it all to you now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, next week we're going to dive in and look at the character of Jesus and what he provides in such a variety of experience. Um, hope you join us. Um, love to have you on campus. If not, tune back in here um, online, and I will see you then.